This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Cultural perceptions are funny things, but then again, perhaps all perceptions are dubious in nature. Human life centers around perception both in waking states and in dream states, and if we did not possess perceptual ability, then it is questionable whether language could ever have been invented. Languages incorporate values and beliefs, so ultimately perception is fundamental to the process of creating values and beliefs. So it was with a bit of skepticism and trepidation that I listened to President Bush on Tuesday choose as his first Supreme Court nominee U.S. Circuit Judge John Roberts, Jr., a Harvard-educated lawyer with a sterling resume and impeccable conservative credentials, whose selection pleased Republicans and prompted Democrats to vow a thorough review in the Senate. This must have come as no surprise to President Bush, as Roberts is a conservative with a history of working to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that struck down state laws outlawing abortion. Upon hearing of the early opposition to his nominee, Bush asked this of the Senate, who must confirm any nomination, I urge you to rise to the occasion, provide a fair and civil process, and to have Judge Roberts in place before the next court sessions begin on October the 3rd, he said. This got me thinking. If this man was a qualified and a moderate, as has as had Bush initially promised, why would anyone necessarily object? Why the preemptive strike? Clearly, President Bush has perceptions that say more than his actual words. He thinks that the confirmation process might proceed in an unfair way because he anticipates that it could, essentially, and please stay with me now, he perceives it as possible that his nominee isn't the slam-dunk choice he wants. His preemptive strike led me to think that this call to fairness is more of a threat, as if you ask tough questions or want to understand his politics and beliefs and motivations, that by being thorough and diligent, U.S. Democrats will be holding up the process and get this, being unfair. Asking someone to be fair essentially means that you don't think it is in their intrinsic nature to be fair. It is similar to accusing someone of being defensive. They're being defensive, chances are they feel that somehow, rightly or wrongly, they are being attacked. Ultimately, it's all about perceptions. And we are living in a culture now of very, very intense perceptions. Like it or not, we are living in a time of fearful and somewhat narrow perceptions, what it means if someone looks a certain way or drives a certain car, or what it means if they wear a turban or dreadlocks or a nose ring, or their body is covered in tattoos or army fatigues or Prada. This adornment publicly defines our beliefs and they signal our affiliations. These perceptions are pervasive all through our culture and are apparent in everything from politics to fashion to art 
even pornography. Yes, pornography. One of the most perplexing of all perception-related problems has been the issue of obscenity and how to define it. A wide variety of tests have been employed by individual court justices to determine what is constitutionally prescribable of obscenity, and for long periods of time, no single approach commanded the support of a majority of the court. The difficulty of defining obscenity was memorably summarized by Justice Stewart in a concurring opinion when he said, I know it when I see it. And frankly, dear listeners, until yesterday, I pretty much felt the same way. Uh, but there is a movie coming out today in very limited release in the U.S. that challenges this notion, this perception, so to speak. It is called Nine Songs, and it is directed by Matthew Winterbottom, and Nine Songs takes place in London. The stars Lisa, an American who's, who is studying in London for a year, and Matt, a glaciologist, meet at a rock concert and fall in love. The film follows both their domestic and highly sexual relationship and includes music from the concerts they go to together, live footage from Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, the Von Bondies, Elbow, Primal Scream, the Dandy Warhols, Super Furry Animals, and a remarkable performance by Michael Nyman. In between the music and the bands, we see Matt and Lisa making love. The film follows their love affair until Lisa must return to America. The love they are making, quote-unquote, so to speak, is real, real penetration, real close-ups of full frontal nudity and so forth. But because it seems to be under the auspices of dramatizing sex between two people that love each other, as opposed to fucking between two people that aren't in love, it seems that therein the perceptual line is drawn. Is it pornography if love is involved? Is it pornography if love is intimated? Is it all about perceptions? Or should we just ask our culture to be fair as they assess what is right and wrong, left and right, even fair and unfair? Tough questions for a tough time in this little corner of the universe. Fortunately for all of us today, I have a brilliant guest on Design Matters, Ms. Virginia Postrel, a woman who Camille Paglia has referred to as one of the smartest women in America. Virginia is the author of The Substance of Style and the Future and Its Enemies. She also writes the Economic Scene column for the New York Times Business section, and she writes a column for Forbes and publishes articles on cultural and economic topics in a wide range of other publications. Welcome, Virginia. Great to be with you. Oh, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. You are truly, truly an extraordinary voice in our culture today. Well. Um, I'd like to start out by talking about your book, The Substance of Style. Mm -hmm. And um, in the book, you write about the age of aesthetics. Um, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that aesthetics, which is not exactly an equivalent to design, but the look and feel of people, places, and things has become increasingly important as sort of the deciding factor in economic life, in creating value added in business, and that in turn reflects a lot of change in cultural attitudes. Uh, we're seeing far more uh, aesthetic intensity, that is aesthetic identity, again, whether we're talking about people, places, or things, and also at the same time a great deal more variety. We've gotten very much away from the idea that good design is a sense of one best way and uh, sort of design authorities issuing 
principles, but then you can rationally decide whether something is is good design or not. It's much more subjective. And what do you mean by the aesthetic imperative? When I refer to the aesthetic imperative, I'm talking essentially about a business imperative, that when you are talking about increasing value or increasing quality, uh, that is going the next step, that what you need to look at is how do you add this sort of making special, this aesthetic experience, this quality of look and feel, so that for many, many businesses, price is very competitive, and also quality in the sense of functional quality has become quite high, even even in areas of of technology or automobiles, that sort of thing, but also in service businesses, whether you're talking about hotels or restaurants, our expectations of what we get for our money as consumers are much higher, not only uh, in the traditional sense of sort of function per unit of uh, quality or, or, excuse me, function per unit of money, but also in this more intangible sense we want more quality in the aesthetic environment, more in terms of personalization, more of this look and feel. Now, I I loved your book. I think it's just an extraordinary book. I've read it a number of different times. And I know that very early on at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a sense of creating differentiation through better products. But the tipping point for this intangible aesthetic, I think, didn't really happen until very recently. What do you think really created that momentum? Well, for most of the 20th century, the the sort of goal of economic production and even of public policy in regard to economics was about getting what I call not bad, getting everybody up to a certain standard of living. So, yes, if you go back to the 20s, you can see amazing design, beautiful aesthetics, but really fairly limited in scope. Uh, you know, yes, people were doing all kinds of cool things with bathrooms, but an awful lot of Americans still didn't have bathrooms. Right. Uh, you know, so you. So, first of all, there was particularly in the post World War II experience this expansion of mass production, mass distribution, uh, getting everybody to what uh, Holiday Inn in 1975 summed up as the best surprise is no surprise. (laughs) The idea was, you know, this amazing advance, you could pull off the road, you could could stay in a hotel, uh, it would be clean, there would be an ugly floral bedspread, but there would be a bedspread, the heating and air conditioning would work. It would be very reliable, not special, but reliable. And that was very much the experience uh, for the United States and for much of the developed world in the second half of the 20th century. The tipping point probably, it's hard to identify a specific, there's not a specific turning point, probably started in the mid-1980s, but people really started to notice in the mid-1990s where you had a, a convergence of pricing pressures, efficient manufacturing. There were lots of manufacturing advances in in the uh, 80s. Uh, 
much more travel, media, immigration, all sorts of aesthetic influences coming into development of new markets and new ways of distribution. Today we think about the Internet, and a lot of people have identified that, but even things like direct mail catalogs really developed in beginning in the 80s as a way to offer what had once been the kind of niche products that you could only find in a big metropolitan area like New York or Los Angeles uh, to anybody in the country. They now had access to a, a variety of aesthetic styles. And this has just continued. Uh, there are all sorts of influences. The, the increasing economic independence of women has had influence in the business world uh, in terms of bringing more aesthetic uh, ideas. Uh, it's also had influence from the point of view of consumers, and some of those influences were not exactly things that people predicted. So, for example, today teenage boys are much more likely to have uh, very definite opinions about their personal style uh, than they might have had in the past, partly because you know their mothers who are working do not shop for them. So they have to develop uh, this sense earlier, and it may not be you know, what their mothers would have chosen. Right. Well, Virginia, I would like to come back after our break to talk a little bit more about this, actually to talk a lot more about it. I'd like to let everyone know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author Virginia Postro, the author of The Substance of Style and the Future and Its Enemies. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Jogal every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Think you've got a grip on the profit potential your property has? Tune in to voiceamerica.com Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Dennis will teach you the ins and outs of the massive world of real estate. You will learn the rewards and pitfalls of why to invest in commercial real estate. You'll also hear from experts in property management, lending, title work, tax-deferred exchanges, legal issues, and many entrepreneurial investors. The best part? You'll learn to generate a regular income that will lead to enticing capital gains. So don't miss one moment of Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on voiceamerica.com. 
keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Virginia Postrel, author of The Substance of Style and the Future and Its Enemies. If you'd like to join our conversation, please call us at 1-866-233-7861. And before the break, Virginia and I were talking about her philosophies about the aesthetic imperative. And, Virginia, in your book and um, also your talks uh, that I've I've seen, you, you speak about how the idea of aesthetics has value in and of itself, that surfaces are not just superficial. And one quote that I loved in the book was this, uh, the look and feel of your toilet brush is just that, sensory pleasures, expressions of what you find appealing. Can you talk a little bit about more, more about how things like the look and feel of our toilet brushes have become so important to us? Right. Well, there's a tendency um, on those rare occasions when social critics uh, venture to assess why people value aesthetics, they almost always attribute it to being all about status, keeping up with the Joneses, and equate uh, aesthetics, look and feel of particularly products, uh, with how much money did you spend. And those are really two different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, even if we're talking about status, uh, today, it's not just about how much money did you spend. It's not that simple. Uh, we're in lots of subgroups, subcultures. Uh, what gives you, what sort of aesthetic gives you status has much more to do with taste and self-expression than with how much can you spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think very, so very thing. interesting well, things now have badge status. value that the, aren't necessarily expensive. Right, exactly. The reason I like to talk about toilet brushes, first of all, it's so bizarre uh, that uh, this, what could be more functional, and yet, again, in the last 10 years or so, there's been this explosion of variety and aesthetics in your toilet brush, specifically in the container for your toilet brush. And yes, I know Philippe Stark and uh, Michael Graves all do quite right. unique and proprietary toilet brushes. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, you, and if you go into a sort of mass retailer like Bed Bath and Beyond, you'll see a great variety of sort of non-designer ones. But they have, I mean, somewhere there's a designer, not famous one, uh, something that's very expressive of someone's personal taste, whether they want something that's sort of a brushed stainless steel look or whether they want a ceramic cat with a long neck. Uh, that's, that's a very common one. And even if you go to Walmart and buy the $4.99 uh, basic Rubbermaid one, it comes in seven different colors or something. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of variety there. Well, what's going on here? Well, first of all, I don't think toilet brushes are about keeping up with the Joneses because the Joneses do not come in to clean your toilet. Uh, that 
you know, if you need to compete for status with your style, you're not going to do it in the with your toilet brush, you're going to do it with your car or, or with your clothes, something that's visible to the public. So what is going on? Why spend a little bit more to get some kind of aesthetic toilet brush? And I think essentially there it's about pleasure. It's about the enjoyment that you get from having that little spot of beauty and self-expression even in a very ordinary, everyday object. And then to some degree, it's also about meaning. It's about saying something about who you are. I really like cats. I'm very modern. I'm very uh, practical, whatever it might be. I like blue. <laughs> something about who you are. And that those are the two sources of aesthetic value. That when we talk about design, design is about function. But it's also about pleasure and meaning, and those are the aesthetic aspects of design, the aesthetic values that designers bring to the world through their work. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, but before I do, I, I would like to confess that I, too, am the very proud owner of a designer toilet brush. Um, do you think that the need for people to get pleasure and meaning from something as small in their lives as toilet brushes is reflective of the lack of specialness or pleasure or meaning that they feel overall? Or do you think that it's something that just is enhancing somebody's experience of being alive or both? I mean, there seems something ever so slightly sad about feeling the need to have to go buy a designer toilet brush, again, with the full knowledge that I indeed possess one? Well, I think it entirely depends on the person. And you cannot generalize about people's motives except to say, well, they're getting some sort of pleasure and meaning. Is that happy? Is that sad? That really depends on the person's particular situation. If they're trying to fill their lives up with, you know, busyness and substitute for other values, that may be sad. But this, you could observe the very same shopping behavior, the very same uh, set of acquisitions in somebody who had a very happy, fulfilling life and just enjoyed having these pleasurable objects around them. So I think you can't say it is good or bad inherently, I think it's good in the sense that on the margin, as sort of an incremental addition to your life, it adds some positive value. Uh, but whether that, whether your life in general is happy is really up to you. It has to do with other factors. Virginia, we have a caller on the line, James from New Jersey. Welcome to Design Matters. Uh, thank you. Sure. You have a question for Virginia? Did we lose you, James? I guess we did. Virginia, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Okay. Um, I guess we lost our caller. I'm sure he'll call back. Um, one of the things that you talk about is the transition of the phase of the phrase, I like that, and you talk about how it's merged into I'm like that and that this is something that you believe is identity prevailing. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by identity prevailing and how that transition has occurred? Right. 
Well, first of all, I I think that you can sum up this idea of pleasure and meaning as the sources of aesthetic value in these two sentences. I like that. So it just pleases me, makes me happy. And I'm like that. It says something about who I am. And identity is an interesting and very slippery concept of and all the more slippery when we start to relate it to aesthetics. Uh, it's about two things. We in the United States tend, because we have this individualistic culture, we tend to think about identity is about standing out, looking different, being different, uh, being an individual. And it is. It is about that. But it's also about association. It's about who you associate yourself with, whom you, with whom do you identify what values, what attributes, whatever, even what activities. And so when we sort of make our aesthetic lives, whether it's our personal lives and how we dress or whether you're designing a product, a brand, packaging, a restaurant, whatever it might be, you have to ask these two questions. Who am I and who am I like? What do I like personally and with whom do I identify? And so often we I mean, we don't usually ask these questions consciously, uh, but you'll find this phenomenon called costume echoes where people tend to dress and look something like their friends or their colleagues, not because it's consciously coordinated, but just because it's expressing this identity. Uh, similarly, uh, restaurants that serve similar cuisines will often sort of signal what the uh, – the customer is going to expect with the design of the restaurant. So if you go into something that has sort of a Tuscan feel, you're going to have a different uh, expectation than if you go into something that looks very pubby or something like that. Um, so when I talk about identity prevailing, it's this matter of this very important aspect of what aesthetics does. It allows us to say something about who or what we are or, or who or, it, as I say, it can be what a product represents or what a place represents. It doesn't always have to be personal, but that perception is in the audience, um, in the audience's mind, and it is partly about evoking their identity and their response. I see. <laughs> Or do you? No, I do. I'm just <laughs> thinking about all the echoes that I, I participated in my own life. You know, I'm, I'm one way at work. I'm one way with my family. You know, I'm a 43-year-old woman, you know, at work. But with my family, somehow I end up being 12 again. And, you know, <laughs> the big baggy T-shirts I mean, there was, the ponytails there was a great and everything example else. So. Of this question recently, the, the women's college lacrosse team, that won the championship, went to the White House. And there was a group photo, oh, yes, and some of yes. your listeners may have read about this. There's yes. a group photo, and many people were scandalized because these young women, many of them were wearing flip-flops, um, which young women don't seem to know are not normal shoes <laughs> because there's been a shift in the customs. And then also people commented that maybe they were a little informally dressed, even though they clearly had given thought to their wardrobes. Well, I was looking at this picture and I was thinking, you know, these young women, they look very much like each other. I mean, there's definitely some costume echo going on there. Uh, they, if somebody, if one of them had shown up 
in a you know a dark navy suit in and and stockings and pumps that would have looked really out of place, even though they would have looked like a Washington person. Right. No, <laughs> actually, really I, um, Kim Corrick in New York interviewed the whole entire lacrosse team uh, the next day, and in their honor, she wore flip-flops to uh, her program because, you know, she was, I guess, you know, being kind of cheeky about it. I'd like to talk uh, more about this uh, after the break, Virginia. I'd like to let our listeners know that this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Virginia Postrel, author of The Substance of Style and the Future and its Enemies. We'll be right back with our callers and Virginia right after these messages. Please don't go away. When business is in your blood and you need answers, get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Tune in to Big Money with Mike Geisher every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Mike will focus on the issues, needs, and problems affecting the world's largest investors. Join Mike and his guest from the institution investors industry as they discuss investing and controlling your money. Mike has spent his entire adult life in close proximity with the financial markets and has become one of the world's most sought-after teacher and speaker on topics of the securities, markets, and the economy. Author of eight books on the security markets and a monthly newsletter read by over 250,000 people, Mike brings insights, humor, and clarity to this often secretive community. So tune in every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Big Money with Mike Geisher on business.voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. 
Broadcasting live from New York City, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Melman, your host, and my guest today is author Virginia Postrel. Uh Before the break, Virginia, we were talking about the flip, flap, flip, flop, flap at the White House. Um, and uh, I think it's really interesting how our notions of dressing up have so fundamentally changed. I was thinking uh, during the break, I was, I was talking to Virginia listeners about my numerous echoes and was also thinking about how it wasn't only about 30 or so years ago that people really fundamentally dressed up and put so much care and effort into their appearance when doing things as simple as flying on an airplane. And I'm not joking, but on my last flight back to uh, New York from California, I saw somebody in their pajamas, <laughs> flying in their pajamas, um, planning to sleep for the flight and wanting to be comfortable. Um, but, Virginia, we have a caller on the line, uh, James from New Jersey. Are you still with us? Hi there. Hi. Hi, Virginia. Hi, Debbie. You're very um, it's, Debbie, it's very funny that you even say that because I was I was thinking as you said that 28 years ago, when I was almost 17, I went to Europe, and um, I had a three-piece suit on. And it was a long plane ride with a three-piece suit and a tie on. Oh, yes. So, And, and everybody did that. I mean, that's just how, how it worked. And there's something kind of sad, I think, that um, it's not like that anymore. But, Virginia, I, w- I was wondering if, if uh, it's a thought I have. Um, you know, there was a time where when you went into the drugstore, uh, it was sort of an eye feast, you know, structurally speaking, all the bottles and all the jars and everything was different. And, and today you walk into the drugstores, the pharmacies, and, and it just sort of seems like it's a structural blur. Um, you know, everything sort of looks alike. Everything is not even particularly attractive. I mean, the difference between, I guess, uh, if you see a Prell shampoo bottle today and a Prell shampoo bottle 25 years ago, you know, one has form and the other is just a blob. So I'm wondering if, if you find that so um, sort of across the board where all of these these things where people uh, took a lot of thought to create shape and form have now just uh, been given up to bland function. Well, I think we're coming out of that a little bit, but it takes time because, of course, when you're talking about um, – Talking about shampoos, you know, what happened was back in the good old days of the beautiful Prell bottle and the green with where you could sink the pearl. And <laughs> the all pearl, that. right. Uh, uh, pretty much the, the functional characteristics of shampoos were pretty lousy. I mean, they weren't really great for your hair. They did get it clean. And so there was all this pressure over a long period of time on improving the functional quality. I think what you're seeing now is slowly – in this particular industry, you're starting to see a turn. And the, the the bottle that I would tell people to go and look at is there's a new Crest mouthwash. And um, I wish I could remember this. You know, it has a very bland and bizarre name like Healthy Rinse or something <laughs> like that. But it is a beautiful bottle. Uh, it comes in different sizes, and it's strikingly uh, attractive compared to the very boring Listerine bottles that are right next to it. With and isn't that the same because the Listerine bottle was such a great bottle? Right, right. Um, and what's happening is Procter & Gamble in particular, uh, this is not a coincidence that this is happening with Crest because Procter & Gamble, is, which has historically been 
two things, a technology company all about improving the, you know, the chemistry of all these things to, to do whatever it is they need to do, and then, of course, a mass advertising and marketing company in the traditional sense is now becoming more and more of a design company, realizing that they they need to differentiate on that, that the customer really cares about it. The drugstore is a very interesting environment. I think about this and all the effort that goes into creating sort of drugstore cosmetics and the typical drugstore is just hideous in that department and the manufacturers don't have much control over that. But I think there's going to be pressure there because as you know, as people get used to aesthetics in one area of their life, it starts to spill over into other areas and they start to expect it in those other areas. So I, I think there's hope is the bottom line. Did that ask you, answer your question, James? Sure did, and more. Thank you. I'm glad somebody feels the same way. <laughs> it gives me hope at the same time. Yeah. Thank you for Thank calling. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks, Debbie. Um, Virginia, you know, one of the things that I really was intrigued by, one of the lines in your book, um, I believe it was the very end of the Boundaries of Design chapter, mm-hmm. you talk about how you believe that our greatest fears of the aesthetic future are not of too little design but of too much and can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we you know, we're talking here with James, and we're talking about wouldn't it be nice if the shampoo bottles were prettier and all this sort of thing. And that's great. You get to live, if, if, if there's more aesthetics, you get to live in a more beautiful, more interesting, more personalized world. But it also brings enormous pressures to bear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you have to, if you're designing a shampoo bottle, you have to think not just about shipping and packaging in terms of, you know, filling it up and, and all of those sort of manufacturing distribution problems. Now you've also got to wor- worry about what it looks like, what it feels like, what connotations it has, all of these uh, sort of design issues. And that's great for the end consumer, but if you're the, you know, company trying to eke out a living in a, you know, in, in a highly competitive market, it's one more pressure. And the same thing is true for all of our anxieties about personal appearance, uh, you know, why are people, why do people fret about plastic surgery? Well, they're sort of afraid they're going to have to get it. <laughs> They don't really, you know, a lot of people don't really want that. Now, I argue in in the book, I argue that there's a limit to how much something like plastic surgery is going to spread because it's expensive, it's dangerous, it's gross, all of those sorts of things. Um, As long as it has these downside risks, not everybody's going to get it. But, But think if it were as easy as dyeing your hair. Or or brushing your teeth. <laughs> well, I imagine that it's that at some point in our future it will. And, be. It, and at some point it may be. And then people probably, um, you know, will be more common because there are are, uh, you know, goals. If it, assuming that it's effective, uh, that people do have desires to be more youthful, desires to be more attractive, etc. Um, so that's one thing. The other anxiety that's out there, which I think is more of a false one is that everything's going to become uniform. And that I don't think there's the evidence points in the opposite direction, that people actually like a lot of variety and uh, 
change and self-expressiveness and that, in fact, the big challenges today are in how do you sort through all the choices and what are the opportunities if we're talking about a business context. And One of my big messages today is that businesses should look for ways to help people negotiate choices while still keeping the advantages of choice, which are you get the thing that's right for you. Uh, so that retailers need to pay much more attention to merchandising in the sense of helping people select as opposed to helping people get lost so maybe they'll see something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that um, there, There's an increasing role for people like interior designers who get to know you but also know the territory of what's out there and help give you a manageable number of choices to uh, select from. Well, I, I find it actually quite perplexing that people have such issues about how much choice there is in our society as if that was somehow a symbol of rampant consumerism when I think it's really about choice. And, uh, you know, I, I often will suggest when people come after me about, you know, participating in this rampant consumerism that what is the difference between having, you know, 17 different toothbrushes to choose from or having 17 different types of music to choose from or different types of books to choose from or different types of people to choose from? Why is having a lot of choice necessarily a bad thing? Right. Well, I think that, I mean, I'm all for having a lot of choice, but I think you have to think about how we psychologically negotiate that. And people who don't like choices tend to want to throw up their hands and say the answer is to have fewer choices. And my response to that is no, exactly like you say. You're implicit in in your examples was, well, you just pick on toothbrushes because you don't like toothbrushes, but what about music, which you do care about? Right. Um, We want to be able to select the things that are right for us in those realms that we care about. And, you know, and sometimes those realms are very mundane. People do. There are people who care very much about their toothbrush. Absolutely. I care very much about my toothpaste. Right. Uh, you know, I care very much about my sunscreen. Yep. There, there are these certain things. And there, I think, actually going back to James's remark about the design of, of things in the drugstore, that's an opportunity for designers to try to help match the expressiveness of the packaging with some kind of, uh, of selection. Help people find things. Don't make everything look alike. Um, give things an identity. It partly because it helps people deal with choice. It helps them find what it is that they're looking for. Um, but I think there is this issue of the way our minds work, we find it much easier to make a decision when we're looking at six or seven things as opposed to 30 or 40 things. So the question is not how do you get rid of all but six or seven choices. The question is how do you group things in such a way that people can negotiate it. Well, we'll uh, have to continue to talk about this after our break. I think it's a really incredibly close-to-my-heart topic. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my brilliant guest today is Virginia Postrel, author of The Substance of Style and The Future and Its Enemies. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away.
More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Virginia Postrel, author of the substance of style and the future and its enemies. And for our listeners out there that might want to read more of Virginia's work, I encourage you to go to her website, www.dynamist.com. That's D-Y-N-A-M-I-S-T.com. Not only does she have some really extraordinary writing about variety and choice and glamour, she also has a blog, which is really quite revealing and wonderful about what is happening in our, in our culture and what is happening in the world that we're living in now. 
Um, speaking of glamour, I, I was reading some of your articles about Glamour Virginia, and what is your thought about the definition of glamour right now in our society? Well, the work that I'm doing on glamour, first of all, if people were listening from the beginning of the show, they know that I write about things like toilet brushes. So I don't <laughs> just, you know, I'm not generally somebody who thinks about glamour, but San Francisco Museum of Modern Art asked me to write an essay on glamour for an exhibit that they were doing, and, and I got really interested in it. What interests me about glamour is to think about glamour not as a particular style, uh, but rather to think about glamour as an imaginative process that takes place in the audience's mind. Oh, how wonderful. And that can be evoked by all different kinds of styles depending on the audience and the context, uh, but that always has in common a sense of grace, uh, ease, a, a sense of mystery, and also what I call transcendence, or you might call it idealism, or some kind of uh, sense of appealing to uh, the desires and wishes and, and greater purposes, possibly, of the audience. Now, this does not mean that glamour is always good. You can use glamour for very evil ends, not for example. Of, well, you know... There's a wonderful book about Adolf Hitler's aesthetics. I can't remember the name of the to take the, let's, what, what kind of evil? Well, let's take Nazis. That's a good example of evil. Hitler was a master at using glamour and theatricality, especially in his rise to power in evoking response in his audience. So that's sort of the extreme. Uh, more often, uh, you see, you know, people may sort of lose themselves in a fantasy world or, or, you know, aspire too much to what is glamorous that they and so forget the nitty-gritty details that actually make life work. So there's a tension there. Who do you feel is using glamour to their advantage these days? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I actually, the, the idea that I've been, that I'm working on right at this very moment is I'm thinking about why it is that uh, comic books are so productive for for the movies? Why it, the recently the big comic convention Comic Con was in um, San Diego, and the Los Angeles Times I'm in LA at the moment covered it extensively because it is a big Hollywood business story of who's going to be uh, you know, what movies are going to do well that are have this base. Well, I was thinking about why is it that comics are so effective as movies, and I think partly it is that when Hollywood was giving up glamour, and this is going back decades, the comics preserved it, and so then when you had the original, not the original, but the Christopher Reeve Superman movie, it had this real sense of wonder and glamour, and you'll believe a man can fly, and uh, and that injected that into the movies and it has continued not that every comic book movie is successful or any good or anything like that but they preserve that sort of sense that we associate with movies and theatricality so I think that's an interesting area of a type of glamour that you don't usually think of that I'm quite interested in 
Well, I'm also really intrigued by the whole imaginative process that goes into projecting glamour. I remember back when Madonna first first mm-hmm. became a superstar, and we're you know we're talking about 20 years right. ago or so that. Um, cultural anthropologists were, were commenting on, well, you know, here's a woman that's not really beautiful, but she's certainly projecting beauty. Right. And, and I find that really compelling. And I think that there's something about that nature of celebrity now that you sort of project a celebrity kind of mentality, you know, right. that red carpet mentality. Uh, right. Some and have it, some don't. The real trick is how do you have that and preserve enough mystery so that, you know, you don't go down the, you know, J-Lo path. <laughs> where, where Which, what path do you think that is? First she's glamorous, and then we know way too much about her, and she ceases to be glamorous, you know, yeah. uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the whole concern about Tom Cruise suddenly, instead of being a little mysterious, is now going, you know, bonkers on Oprah. I think that's... I don't know whether I would have classified him as a glamour star in the past, but he has certainly risked some of that glamour uh, with these kinds of antics. Well, there seems to be, I mean, I think the aura of celebrity is is something that I think our culture is trying to extend over everybody with reality TV shows. And, I mean, why is Paris Hilton famous? I still don't really quite know. And it's really something that I'm becoming obsessed with. Um, We have um, Caitlin on the line. We have a caller, Virginia. Caitlin, welcome to Design Matters. Hi. Thank you so much, Virginia. I just love your book and this um, show is so interesting. Um, I'm a big L.A. and New York fan, and I just wanted to know, um, which city do you think is the most stylish? Oh, which is the most stylish? Well, I always like L.A., you know. (laughs) I mean, L.A. is my beloved city that I adore. So um, I don't even, but I don't know. It's an inch. The styles are very different in the two places. L.A. is so much so much more casual. Um, it's a kind of, there, there is a kind of effortlessness, and often people, I mean, it's very casual, but people often look quite good in it. New York is a little more put together, and Dallas, where I actually live, um, is even more self-consciously stylish and and um more put together and sort of like the opposite extreme of L.A. So Would you say that, that L.A. The LA and, style and um, is a little bit more confident and that they don't try as hard? That, that New York, that L.A. is? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's true in the sense that people are, um, yeah, it's more, it's more about self-expression. It's more about comfort. Um, and and yet people can be quite stylish, and of course a lot of styles come from LA and come from the West Coast. And I think the the intense ethnic mix here, but that you also see it in New York, is is very important as well. That things are coming out of particularly out of the Latino community, um, which is one that historically has put a great premium on style, and, and not only in this country but in Latin America, uh, for both men and women. And that's that's something that is very different from the sort of traditional Anglo uh, view, which is that like men should never think about how they look, which, of course, they do. 
Oh, it does too. It does too. think about it. And I think that's one of the biggest areas of growth right now is the whole male grooming area, men's manicures, men's skin care. I mean, it's extraordinary now. I mean, men have historically been able to age very gracefully and have often been considered to look better as they age when, in fact, now there's um, L'Oreal's just come out with uh, skin cream for men with the tagline, you deserve it too which I think is, is right. a, a big shift in, in the way that these products are being marketed. Absolutely. And, and, you know, men still, the ideal age look for men is older than the ideal age look for women, which, by the way, varies from place to place as well. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you should look good at your age and you should look groomed and that sort of taking care of yourself is a, is a form of masculinity achievement that's a you know that's a shift um i don't think it's going to go to an extreme uh, but i think that you know clearly you see important cultural icons particularly athletes who take great care of themselves they have great bodies because they have to for their jobs <laughs> and often dress very well as well so then end up in jail well, some of them do. I wouldn't want to smear them all. No, not at all. Virginia, I'm, I'm so sorry to say we've come to the end of our broadcast. I'd like to thank you so much for being such a marvelous guest. And I'd also like to thank the kind people at Voice America Business, Denise Dion, Chris Hilliard, Lori Call, Robert Arkin, my production manager, Ruben Colomb, and my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank the staff, my partners at Sterling Brands, my incredible producer, Lisa Grant, and my chief researcher, Jen Seinman. Join me next week for Design Matters when my guests are the founders and writers of four of the most read, most controversial, and extremely popular design blogs, including Speak Up, Design Observer, and Be a Design Group. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Melman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.